Romans chapter 12, verse 1 and 2, I beseech you therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God, that you present your bodies a living sacrifice, holy, acceptable unto God, which is your reasonable service. And be not conformed to this world, but be ye transformed by the renewing of your mind, that ye may prove what is that good and acceptable and perfect will of God. Lord, we pray that you'd help us this evening as we look once again at this passage and other passages that communicate the need and necessity for us to be victorious, to overcome sin in our lives, to look to you for the victory that only you can give. I trust that you will give us eyes to see, give us ears to hear, give us hearts that genuinely desire this for our lives that we might be pleasing, well-pleasing in your sight. So God, help us as we go through each of these steps. There's a practicality in many of these. I trust that you'll just help us to see just how vital it is for us to be trusting you in the entire process. You'd never meant for us to do this alone. You told us to come unto you in salvation, but you never meant for us to leave you as you sanctify us and make us more like the Lord Jesus. So help us to stay close because we need you in every step of this process of becoming more like Christ. So speak to our hearts, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. So we talked about victory this morning. We talked about the fact that our young people went to camp not last week, not the past week, but the week before, and I heard a message on Friday morning by Jim Shetler, and Jim Shetler gave this particular message entitled Victory. And we talked about the fact that every one of us needs to know how to resist temptation, how to overcome sin, because we're all Christians. It's not just for teenagers. It's for every one of us. Every one of us needs to know how to overcome temptation. Every one of us needs to how to resist temptation and overcome sin. And so... Uh, we said we wanted to know this because it's practical for all of us as believers. We also need to know this because of our young people. We want them to continue into things that they've heard. We don't want the things that they have heard to slip from their hearts. We want their hearts to continue to yearn for the things that they did when they were at camp, when they were, they were spoken to three four times a day by counselors, by speakers, by lots of different influences that took place, and they were in a wonderful environment to learn the truth and desire to do the things that the truth was bringing to their heart's attention. And so, uh, nonetheless, we took and we said we have a wonderful object lesson that Romans chapter 12 kind of presents to us here. And the object lesson is that of this guy here. How does this guy live here? This ugly little worm. How does this caterpillar, how does he turn into this wonderful, beautiful butterfly? Well, our, our passage right here kind of alludes to the process because when it's the Bible says, uh, be not conformed to this world, but be ye transformed by the renewing of your mind. The word transformed is a Greek word, metamorpho. It's where we get the word metamorphosis. If you remember biology class, maybe years and years ago, where they talked about the process of metamorphosis where the caterpillar literally changes into this completely different creature, this butterfly. 
Caterpillar's kind of lowly, the worm, you know what I mean? We don't like worms, but he eats up the vegetable garden, and you know, we don't particularly like the worms, but butterflies, we like the butterflies. We want to attract those to our gardens. We don't like the caterpillars, but we like the butterflies. But the caterpillars can turn into the butterflies, and God looks at us, and I think sometimes we need to look at ourselves in our old nature. We're like caterpillars, aren't we? Just things that uh, consume and lowly, and, uh, but God wants us to be like the butterfly. And so, we looked at the verse here, that we just described it here, Romans chapter 12, verses 1 and 2. We looked at the process where the caterpillar crawls up and uh, he eats the milkweed, and as a result of that, he goes and spins a cocoon or a chrysalis and, and then ends up uh, winding this encasement about them. He entombs himself, if you would, and it's like the caterpillar dies. And then God does a miraculous process in the death or of this caterpillar and literally brings this caterpillar to life in a completely different form as a butterfly. A beautiful illustration. And as I said this morning, God has given us some wonderful illustrations in nature that depict the Christian life and different facets of it. And this for certain does depict the Christian life, the sanctification process whereby God turns us from our old selves, our own selves, into a brand new creature. It's a process. It's not an act. It's a process. Salvation, justification is an act. But sanctification is a process by which we become more and more like Jesus Christ. We, we become more like that beautiful butterfly, so to speak. And then we give wings to fly. And so, um, so we talked about this process on this morning. And so then we said that, uh, that we wanted to take this and we wanted to liken it unto the word victory and use the word victory as uh, a word that gives us seven steps to help us to, to, to be able to, to put flesh, I guess you can say flesh out the process of overcoming sin and temptation in our life. So we said the very first one, uh, vigilant against, guard against sin. The V is vigilantly guard against sin. What's the V? Vigilantly, it's, I know it's a pretty tough word sometimes when it's like a tongue twister, but say it again. Vigilantly guard against sin. And we looked at 1 Peter chapter 5 and verse 8. We found out that the devil, this is a roaring lion. And he, what is he doing? He's your adversary. He's a roaring lion. He walks about seeking whom he may devour, whom resist steadfast in the faith, knowing that the same affliction are accomplished in your brethren. So the devil is our adversary. He's our enemy. He's subtle. He's deceptive. He's a liar. He's dangerous. We need to believe that. We need to know that. We need not fool around with him. We need not think that we're more powerful than him. We need not think that, take this lightly. Peter did, and as a result, he became a casualty right before the cross of Christ. And uh, we can too. And we have to realize this. He's seeking to devour us. He's seeking to consume us. He's seeking, us, he's seeking to make us worthless for the sake of the kingdom of God. One of his chief strategies is tempting us with sin. The devil is very good at tempting us with sin. He's been watching mankind for the last 6,000 years. He knows what mankind thinks. He doesn't read your mind, but somehow or another, he sees the patterns of life, and he knows where to tempt you. He knows what you look at. He knows what you don't look at. He knows where you go, where you won't go. He knows all these things about you, and he's able to somehow or another provide the temptations that fit your particular lust, your strong desires, away or apart from God. The devil can do this. And so we're commanded to be vigilant, to be watchful, to be alert. 
We used some illustrations this morning about um, Iraqi soldiers, the, uh, the Navy SEALs going into um, Iraq, into Ramadi, and taking that city, knowing that the Iraqi uh, 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 um, uh, what do you call it? insurgents were there, just ready to kill them and to take them out. They had booby traps, they had IEDs, they had all different things planted just especially to take out our American soldiers. And so there were snipers on the rooftops and there were all kinds of things that they had to watch out for. So as they walked and they went through the city and as they cleared the different buildings, they had to, they had to walk circumspectly for sure, but they had to be aware that they had an enemy and the enemy was trying to take them out. And we have to understand that we have an enemy as Christians. We understand physical danger. We understand if we went on a battlefield and people have guns with real bullets that are ready to kill us. We understand the danger there. We are no less in danger when our souls, you see, are what the devil is shooting at, trying to take us down, trying to destroy us as individuals who need to be servants of the Lord. He wants to take us out. We are on the Lord's side. He knows whose side you're on. And he wants to take us out. He wants to make us and, uh, inoperable. He says, be sober, be serious. Be serious about the fact that you're in this battle. Resist, they resist steadfast in the face. So we, we need to resist this devil, resist his antics with a steadfast, with a, you, you oppose him strong, steady, and, and in the faith, doctrinally sound. Make sure that your resistance is according to the word of God because God wants to give us the victory and can give us the victory, but we need to realize the danger that's before us. That's the V. Then we talked about the I. The I is imagine the consequences. What's the I? Imagine the consequences. Imagine the consequences. Then we use Galatians chapter 6, where it says, Be not deceived, God is not mocked. For whatsoever man soweth, that shall he also reap. So sin has consequences. You sow something, you reap. Now it goes both ways. You sow things that are good, and you reap things that are good. You sow things that are evil, you reap things that are evil. Look what the verse goes on to say, and it says here, For he that soweth to his flesh shall of the flesh reap what? But he that soweth to the Spirit shall of the Spirit reap what? Life. life. What kind of life? Everlasting life. In other words, the dividends of walking in the Spirit and following the Spirit give you a quality of life and give you a life to look forward to, not only here on this earth, but there in our heavenly abode. God, we're laying up literally treasures from heaven. As we obey the Spirit of God, we are literally laying up rewards for ourselves in heaven, and God has something very special for those, even crowns that we can receive as we follow the Spirit of God. There's an eternal reward. There's a life that we will never lose in all of this. And so he says, let us not be weary in well-doing, because sometimes it's easy to get weary in well-doing, because sometimes we don't see the fruit of what we're doing right away. Sometimes things are delayed in coming. We talked this morning, Burke plants some corn in the ground. He doesn't expect it to come up the next day. He doesn't expect ears on the corn to come even the next week. He realizes that there is a process that the corn has to go through to mature so that he finally ends up with a harvest. And so he doesn't get rattled when he doesn't see something in the first day or two, a week or two, because he knows the harvest. Well, God knows your life. He has a plan for you. And yet that plan includes bringing you to fruition, bringing you through the process of growth so that you can bear fruit. And then as you follow the process and grow accordingly, mature as you need to, then God gives fruit. So don't give up, you see? Let's not be weary in well-doing. Sometimes it's easy to look at the world and say, how come they're getting everything and we don't get anything? How come the world seems to be succeeding? They got the finances, they got all the good stuff, and we just seem to be you know, getting by on meager fare. 
This is their heaven. You understand that? This is their heaven. This is as good as it's ever going to get for them. You've got something far, far, far greater, far, far more rewarding, far, far more fruitful than what the world has to look forward to. Don't be weary in well-doing. For in due season ye shall reap, if ye faint not. The problem is, there's so many times people faint. This recent COVID crisis has caused some people to faint. They're afraid. They're scared. And so they're giving up some of the things that they ought to be pursuing. You see? You think the devil had anything to do with this? You think that's possible? You think the devil had any hand at all in what's taking place in our country, in our world? Do you think at all this could be something the devil is using as a ploy to dislodge Christians, perhaps to discourage Christians, perhaps to stop the movement of the gospel across the land? Do you think that's possible? I think we need to realize that uh, it is entirely possible. But let us not be weary in well-doing. In due season, we shall reap if we faint. Let's not give up in this fight. Amen? So uh, think about what will happen. Sin has consequences. God will not be mocked. God has some promises in the Scripture. You can take the promises to, and you can realize what God said. It's going to happen. And so we need to believe God for these things. Be sure your sin will find you out. So there's a negative consequence. Mess around with sin in its wrong context. And there's negative consequences that are sure to come out. I can get away with it. No, you can't because God's going to see to it that he won't be mocked. He will see to it that those consequences come about. You'll be found out. So ask yourself questions like, how will this affect my testimony? How will this affect my parents? How will this affect my, my marriage? You say, well, I'm not married. You, you will be. Perhaps one day you will be. Your marriage can be affected by the sins that you have today in your youth. How will this affect my kids? Some of you are married right now. You have families. You have children. How will this affect your kids? I look to myself and say, how will this affect my grandkids? We need to have a... We need to have a uh, 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 and understanding that our lives affect a lot of people. And, and before you make a move that would be very costly, it would be shameful and cause disgrace to come upon you, your name, your testimony, your church, the Lord himself, you need to ask yourself, if I do this, what could become of me? There's many sad stories of people who took sinful, or made sinful choices, and as a result of those sinful choices, brought great reproach upon the name of the Lord, great reproach upon their families, and sometimes such great reproach that they literally couldn't handle it. As I've said before, we need to finish strong, amen? amen. Run through the line, not to the line. We need to be finishers in this race that God's given us. Paul said, I've fought a good fight. I finished the course. We want to be like Paul. We want to finish the course. We want to fight a good fight. We don't want to give up in the middle. We don't want to become casualties, castaways, as he said. And so we need to ask ourselves this question. Is it worth it? Is it worth it to do this? Sin is pleasurable, yes, but just for a season. You see, just for a season. You need to have enough faith to understand that. Then we talked about crying out to God. Another important step. What's the C? Okay, what's the V? <laughs> that was good. <laughs> okay, what's the V? All right, what's the I? Imagine the consequences. If I do this, what will happen? Imagine what they could be. What's the C? 
This is a very important step in this whole thing. We covered it this morning. We gave you a number of verses. I didn't give you all the verses that I have, but nonetheless, there's a number of verses that tell us about this, this very idea of crying out to God. Well, it's all over the Scriptures, and we see lots of different illustrations of it. How does crying out to God make a difference? Well, it's a cry of distress. I'm in big trouble. We need to look at it like, God, I need you. I'm in big trouble down here. I've got sin. I've got temptations. I've got, I've got this devil that's after me. I've got my flesh. It's not good for me. I got people that are trying to get me to do things I know I shouldn't do. You cry out to God. The problem is that sometimes we think we can handle it, but let him to think he stand and take heed lest what? He fall. he fall, that's right. You can't handle it. Peter thought he could handle it, and he walked with the Lord three years. Right next to Jesus Christ himself. Oh no, Lord, I won't, I won't deny you. No way. What did Jesus say to Peter that night before Jesus was betrayed? Watch and pray, lest you fall into temptation. Yeah. Peter fell asleep. You know, it's so easy for us to fall asleep. It's so easy for us to think we're not going to be the one to fall. We're not going to be the casualty. But listen, every one of us is capable of the most hideous sin that you've ever heard anyone else do. Do you believe that? Or do you believe that you're exempt, that you would never do anything like that? Now, I know you wouldn't want to, but the truth of the matter is, you need to realize how susceptible you are to sin. How susceptible. And so we need to cry out to God. We need a cry of distress. I'm big trouble. A cry of deliverance. I need to be free from this problem. I need deliverance, God. But you need to be convinced of that. Some people don't want to be delivered from their sin. They're comfortable with their sin. So they don't cry out to God because it, they kind of like their sin. Now, sin is pleasurable for a season, but sin, when it is finished, what does it bring forth? Death. Death. And that's what's down the road. That's what's down the pike. You've got to know that. So don't get comfortable in your sin. Just because you didn't get zapped the first time you did something wrong doesn't mean that you're not going to reap the consequences of your sin. And so you need to cry out to God. You need to be in distress. God, I need you. I'm in big trouble. Deliverance. God, I need to be free from this problem in desperation. Literally, the very nature of this crying out is the nature of, God, I'm desperate. I need you. I've tried everything. I've tried to do this myself. And I keep falling. I keep, I keep messing up. I need to be desperate. And then it's a cry of dependence. Lord, I need you. Like sang this song this morning. Lord, I need you. We need to believe that. Not just a song we sing. I mean, really, in our heart of hearts, we need to realize, God, I need you. Now, that's a good time to say amen. 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 Well, this just... <laughs> Some of you over there are thinking, what are they doing over there? Okay. Brother Shetler was telling us that, you know, one of the things he's trying to get teenagers to, you know, he's, he says, every time I go like this, you go... Every time I go like this, you go. Praise the Lord. When I go like this, you go. Hallelujah. Yes, you got it. Okay, so anyway, uh, so uh, we need to cry out to God, depend upon God. Victory only comes when those, to those desperate enough to depend upon God to deliver them from their distresses. There needs to be this sense as you cry out to God. It's not just praying a little simple prayer, you know, God help me today, you know, in a very passive way. It's, it's really 
looking to God because you know yourself. You know where you fall. You know where you falter. You know your, your own foolish leanings. Just like the songwriter said, prone to wander, Lord, I feel it. Prone to leave the God I love. Here's my heart. Oh, take and seal it. Seal it to thy courts above. The songwriter had it right. He understood his nature, his old nature, enough to cry out and make that very proclamation in that third verse of his song there. Well, we go on to here, and of course this is just a review here. We talked about vigilantly guard against sin, imagine the consequences, cry out to God, and now we come to the T. The T, the T, the T, the T. Okay. All right. Take thoughts captive. What's T? Take thoughts Take thoughts captive. This passage here in 2 Corinthians is vital. You need to understand this passage. Very important passage right here. Paul's explaining his battle strategy here. And so I'll read the verses to you. Listen to them as I, as I read them to you. For though we walk in the flesh, we do not war after the flesh. For the weapons of our warfare are not carnal, but mighty through God to the pulling down of strongholds, casting down imaginations in every high thing that exalteth itself against the knowledge of God, and bringing into captivity every thought to the obedience of Christ. Usually that's where I see people stop in this little passage here. But don't forget verse 6, and having in a readiness to avenge all disobedience when your obedience is fulfilled. In other words, it's not just a matter of putting away the bad. You've got to have something to put in place of the bad once the bad is put away. And so very, very vital, very important passage for us to look at right here. Verse 3, Paul acknowledges that though he might show up in a human body, he says here, for though we might walk in the flesh, though you see us arriving on the scene in Corinth in our fleshly bodies, he says we don't do war. In the flesh. He says here, we do not war after the flesh. We don't war using fleshly means to do spiritual battle. We battle on a different level. Verse 4 says, well, I'll just come back here. We battle on a spiritual level. Verse 4, our weapons are mighty through God. He says his weapons with which he does battle, are not fleshly derived. Do you see what do you mean by that? He doesn't rely upon clever arguments, his eloquence, his higher education or learning, his wealth, his winsome personality, his salesmanship, or his commanding leadership abilities. He did not depend on any of those fleshly elements to do spiritual warfare with these people. Now, Paul was a very learned man. He learned much. He knew much. But Paul did not depend upon all of those educational, uh, I guess you could say edges, or some of those things that he had developed in schools that he had gone to for all that time, studying in the very top Greek school, I should, uh, 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 Hebrew schools back in his day and time. 
Paul realized that the battle was going to be won through the Spirit. It wasn't going to be won through clever, fleshly means. Now listen, folks, you are not going to cleverly win the battle. I'm not saying you shouldn't study. I'm not saying you shouldn't know some things. I'm not saying that you shouldn't uh, 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 glean from the experiences of people. But I'm saying your true dependence needs to be on the spiritual weapons, not on the carnal weapons, not on the fleshly means whereby you try to get victory. You know, I, I there's some smart people in Washington. They've gone to Harvard. They've gone to Yale. They've got all the credentials. Some of the most idiotic conclusions are coming out of those who are, quote-unquote, highly educated. I call them educated beyond their intelligence. Okay? You have to go to school, a lot of it, to be that stupid. (laughs) You just do. I mean, and so what I'm saying is that sometimes we depend upon doctors and people with credentials and letters after their name, to do, that's going to be the thing to get us through. No. Our weapons are not carnal, but mighty, listen to this phrase, mighty through what? I should say who. Mighty through who? You see, our weapons are mighty because the agent is God. God is the agency of spiritual victory. And so we need to make sure that if we're going to help people, we want to help them through the the divine agency of an almighty, all-powerful God, not some clever thing that we have come up with or some leadership skills. You know, sometimes, you know, you can talk with a young person and because you are older than them and you're a little bit more suave and debonair and you're able to have a little more uh, wisdom in how you approach people, you can try to depend upon your leadership skills to bring people from one position to another. Paul says, I did not stoop to that. That's not what I depended upon. Paul had the learning, but he didn't depend upon that. He realized that the the impact he was going to make on the Corinthians, and as a matter of fact, the impact he was going to make on all Asian Minor as he went through his different missionary journeys, was because of the Spirit's power in and through his life. Now, we have to understand that when it comes to our spiritual victory. we got to take captive the thoughts. But how are you going to do it? Through some clever little mechanism? No, you're going to do it through the power of the, of the Spirit of the living God. That's how you're going to do it. Let me go on. There are strongholds that are in our minds. Now, I, I could preach a whole message on this particular passage. These strongholds. He says our weapons of our warfare are not... Well, let, me, let me back up just a second here. Because my wife gave me a verse a long time ago. I was kind of struggling on a Sunday morning, just wasn't, just wasn't coming together. And my wife knew that I was struggling, so she sent me a passage, a little verse, and she texted to me. And it was in 1 Corinthians chapter number 2, and here's what it said. Paul is saying here, And my speech and my preaching was not with enticing words of men's wisdom, but in demonstration of the Spirit, and of power. Why, Paul? Listen to the way he gives us the why. That, that means in order of that. In order that your faith should not stand in the wisdom of men, but in the power of God. You see this sometimes, you get up here and you say, I just know if I said that right. You know what? 
It's not as important that I say everything exactly right as it is that the Spirit of God takes what <laughs> bumbling, fumbling I might say and speaks to your heart about it. I remember one time I was going soul winning with a guy. He really wanted to learn how to win souls. I spent some time with him. We went through the plan of salvation, talked about how to talk to a person and what they, you know, bring them to the point where they understand what sin is, what Jesus Christ did for their sin, how to trust Christ as their Savior, how to bring them to the point and, and pray and ask Christ to save them. So we walked up to this house. I can tell you, I could bring you right to the house right now. We walked up to this house. And he says, okay, I think I, think I got it. I think I got it. I said, okay. So he started talking to this guy and it was like, Oh, I'm over there. I'm just, I'm just biting my lip. You know, I'm thinking, oh, he is slaughtering this whole thing. This plan of salvation. Oh, this is terrible. But I didn't say anything. I'm just sitting there smiling, you know. You know, and he, he just, he was earnest, but he was all over the map. I'm telling you, he was just all over the map in his explanation. And I'm thinking to myself, this guy is not going to have any idea what in the world he's supposed to do at the end of this. And so the fellow says, well, would you like to accept Christ as your Savior? And the guy looked up and says, yeah, I would. I'm going, I'm just sitting there going, whoa. And sure enough, that guy bowed his head and sincerely prayed and asked Christ to save him. And I'm sitting there going, oh, my. You know what? You know what I lost sight of? It's not by might nor by power, but by thy spirit, saith the Lord. This guy was earnest in his spirit. He sincerely wanted to win somebody to Christ. You know what? He didn't have to say it all particularly right. He didn't have to dot his eyes, cross his T's, and do everything perfect. The Spirit of God took his words, as jumbled and mumbled as they seemed to me, and took his words, and he translated it to that guy who was listening, and that guy understood, and he accepted Jesus Christ as his personal Savior. And that's what this verse means, 1 Corinthians 2. It's, my speech and my preaching was not with enticing words of men's wisdom, but in demonstration of the Spirit and of power. That, in order that, your faith should not stand in the wisdom of men. Because if your stand, faith stands in the wisdom of this man or any man, then the next guy who comes along, you're going to put your faith in them. Yeah. And then they could be going about with some crazy wind of doctrine and you believe them just because they said it and they seem to be a little bit more debonair or suave than the guy who said it last time. No, our faith needs to be in the power of God. That's where our faith needs to reside, in God's power. And when our faith resides in the power of God, that's what makes the difference in people's lives. That's what changes lives. That was free. So our strongholds. He says our, 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 our weapons of our warfare, they're mighty to the pulling down of strongholds. In other words, this is what we want our weapons of warfare to achieve. We want these weapons of warfare to pull down so these strongholds, well, what are these strongholds? What are you talking about, strongholds? What are these things? I like what Matthew Henry says. Matthew Henry says these strongholds are vain, listen to these words now, vain imaginations, carnal reasonings, and high thoughts or proud conceits in others, exalting themselves against the knowledge of God. That is... By these ways, the devil endeavors to keep men from faith and obedience to the gospel. And he secures his possession of their hearts of men 
as his own house or property. Vain imaginations. I like to call them fortresses of falsehood. In other words, the devil gives you thoughts and plants in your mind ideas that at the heart are false. They are lies. Right now the ladies are going through a book in their Sunday school class called Lies Women Believe. Our men's meeting on Saturday mornings once a month, we're going through a book called The Lies Men Believe. How does the devil do his dirty work? How is he so effective? He tells us lies. And then we believe the lies he tells us. And they become fortresses of falsehood. And then we make decisions based on those fortresses of falsehood. We begin building our actions on what we believe, but there are false beliefs. And Paul says these need to be pulled down. These need to be defeated. Let me give you a, a fortress of falsehood. My life is my own. It is not. You are bought with a price. Your body and your spirit belong to God. So, there's the fortress. My life is my own. Now, people in the world believe that. The problem is, some Christians do too. Well, how do you know? Because they say something like this. Here's what I want to do when I graduate. Wait a minute. Your life is not yours. You belong to God. It's not about what you want to do. It's about what does God want you to do. Because you belong to Him. If I was going to borrow something from somebody, I would ask them if I can use it for a certain project. I wouldn't just take it and use it for something that they would never intend for me to use it. Because it belongs to them. So I would have to ask them, can I borrow this and do this with it? And if they said, well, you can borrow, but I don't know if I want you to do that with it. Well, then I should not do whatever it is they forbid me to do. You belong to God. You don't make up your mind about what you want to do with your life. But you see, if you believe that your life is your own and you have the right to make your own decision about what you want to do, you are building your life on that fortress of falsehood. So he says you're going to cast down these imaginations and these high things that exalt themselves against the knowledge of God. In other words, God plainly says in 1 Corinthians 6.20 that your life is not your own. It is plain as day, folks. You don't have to be in a quandary about that principle. It is exceedingly, abundantly clear. But when you have another fortress of falsehood that you believe, you exalt that fortress of falsehood above the clear teaching of the Word of God. And you operate from it rather than from the clear teaching of the Word. And Paul says, we need to tear these things down because this is what's leading Christians astray. When Christians or people are raised in the world, they have all kinds of fortresses like this. They have all kinds of false beliefs that they believe. And they operate according to them. And you see, we need to tear these things down 
You can't do it in the energy of the flesh. You can't do it with suave, devonier, clever arguments. You've got to do it in the power of the Spirit of God. Our weapons are not, you see, they're not carnal, but mighty through God. Two, to the extent that they pull down these strongholds, you see. That's what this is all about. So if you just go along in, the, the, in, in the, the regular way of trying to get things, you're trying to do it yourself. Well, I can, I can sanctify myself. You cannot. You can't sanctify yourself. But if you think you're clever enough, smart enough, you know enough about the Bible so that you could sanctify yourself and plan out your own sanctification, you've got a fortress of falsehood that you're operating from. You need to depend upon God. You need God to change you. You need to submit yourself to God when the Spirit of God speaks to you. You see what I'm saying? So Paul says, we've got to tear these things down. Because that's the way things are going to change. So you look at this first. This is what the strongholds are all about. So he says here, cast down imaginations. These faulty reasonings. These erroneous conclusions that we have arrived at. They are ideas that are entrenched in our thought processes. We've chosen to believe them even though they clearly contradict the clear teachings of God's Word. We will take the clear teachings of God's Word and we will put it aside. I've heard people say, well, this is what the Bible says. Well, I don't care. This is what I believe. I've literally heard Christians say this. Well, this is my experience. And they will trust their experience over what the Word of God clearly teaches. This is precisely what needs to be torn down if we're going to see victory in Jesus Christ, you're not going to experience victory in Jesus Christ if some of the foundational truths that you're trying to, that the, some of the foundational things that you're operating by are false at their very foundation. So uh, imaginations are faulty reasonings. They're erroneous conclusions that clearly contradict the word of God. These must be cast down, verse number five. They must be cast down. We must be prepared to replace these lies by obediently adhering to the truths of God's word and having in a readiness. That means prepared. You're prepared. And having in a readiness to avenge all disobedience when your obedience is fulfilled. So when you see something coming into your life that's false, you need to cast that false thing down. But you can't operate in a vacuum. You have to, Ephesians talks about in Ephesians chapter 5, verse 22 through 24, you have to put off, I'm sorry, 4, chapter 22 through, uh, verses 22 through 24, you have to put off, then you have to renew, and then you have to put on, you see. Put off, renew, put on. So you have to be ready and prepared to put on that which is after Righteousness and holiness, you see, to replace that which is unrighteous and unholy. And so this is the process, and it's a spiritual process. And so we need to take these thoughts captive. Every time we see them crop up in our life, take them captive. Because if not, thoughts become repeated, then they become what? Attitudes. Attitudes that we have eventually become what? Actions. Actions that are repeated eventually become what? Habits. Habits that are repeated eventually become what? Lifestyles. And lifestyles literally give us a trajectory of our destiny in many cases. 
So where do we do the battle? Where should we do the battle? Right here. That's where it starts. Tim LaHaye, years ago, back in the 70s, wrote a book called The Battle is for the Mind. He was right on. He was spot on. That's what the battle is for. The battle is for the mind. The devil, if he can get you in your mind, that's where he's got you. And if you're going to defeat, if you're going to be overcoming, uh, overcome temptation, if you're going to overcome evil, you need to get the battle done in the mind. Once it becomes action, once it becomes habit, oh, listen, habits are hard to break. And so many of you, you're working in camp work, you're dealing with kids, they have habits already, 13, 14, 15, 16 years of age, they have habits entrenched in their lives, and so do you, all of us do. They are hard to break. You're not going to do it yourself. You need the Spirit of God's help. But if you can take those things and you can, as, as old Barney said, or was it Gomer, you got to nip it in the bud. Amen? Nip it in the bud. Nip it in the bud. you got to take that thought and nip it in the bud. You're going to be far more victorious to get your victory that way. That's why it's so important for us to take youth and teach youth these things. Because I'll tell you what, you live your life for 30, 40, 50 years, and then you try to change things, you've you, you got, you got a pretty uphill battle. You've got 30, 40 years of entrenched bad habits, faulty thinking that you've been operating from for all these years, and it's hard for you to see clearly. That's why we need to teach the youth. That's why we need to show the youth what to do. But they get the victory. All right. The battle all takes place in our minds. Jim Shetler had a four-second observation. He said this is not doctrine. He says he cannot take this and prove this from Scripture. He says it's just an observation that he's seen. When you're tempted with an evil thought, he said you need to get rid of that thought within four seconds so that it does not lodge in your mind. It's just a practical thing, but you think about it. If you get a wrong thought, say, oh, no, 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 mm -mm, mm -mm. no. Stop thinking about something else. I think you'll find that it works pretty well for you. If as soon as a thought enters your mind that you know should not be there, get rid of it. If you get on the Internet and all of a sudden something pops up, get, don't, don't stare at it. Get rid of it. Change of you. If, if you're watching something on television, don't look. Uh, just get rid of whatever it is. If you allow that thing to sit in front of your eyes for four seconds or more, it's going to lodge in your heart. And even though you change the channel, even though you flip the screen, it'll be going on in your heart and in your mind. Get rid of it. Cast it down right away. Don't wait. Ask the Spirit of God to help you. We'll get to that in a moment here. All right, T-O. What's O? Observe the omnipresence of God. Now, Psalm chapter 139, verses 5 through 10. Let me read it to you. Thou hast beset me behind and before and laid thine hand upon me. Such knowledge is too wonderful for me. It is high. I cannot attain unto it. 
Whither shall I go from thy spirit? Or whither shall I flee from thy presence? If I ascend up into heaven, thou art there. If I make my bed in hell, behold, thou art there. If I take the wings of the morning and dwell in the uttermost parts of the sea, even there shall thy hand lead me, and thy right hand shall hold me. Now, dear friends, this passage very clearly teaches the that God is everywhere presence, or the omnipresence of God. This is key. Again, it's something that our minds need to dwell on. If you really want to get victory, you need to be fully convinced of God's presence every single place you go. You could say amen there. You see, these things are not nonchalant things. These are not things that we just haphazardly, nonchalantly say, oh yeah, I believe that. These are things that we have to, in the very depth of our soul, believe. And when we do, it will make a difference when we are tempted. Listen, if you were tempted and, and, and I happened to be standing next to you, it's very possible that you would not succumb just because you knew I was standing there. And I'm just another person. I've seen people do all kinds of things when the pastor shows up. <laughs> There's all kind of scurrying around. Oh, the pastor's here. Oh, turn that off, you know. And all the things start to, you know, all of a sudden get. I've seen people sometimes in the grocery store, you know what I mean? They're running down the aisle away from me. And I, I didn't do anything. I just happened to show up. I'm just a person, though. That's all I am. I'm just a person. God's, God's everywhere you go. Everywhere. You can't get away from me. You're not alone. You're never alone. God is always with you. Though I am with you always, even to the end of the world. I will never leave you or forsake you, Hebrews 13.5. God is always present with you. you. We need to be convinced of this. If you were convinced of the presence of God and you were tempted with sin and you knew God was right there with you, if you just knew God was right there with you, you wouldn't sin. There's other passages to talk about this. Proverbs chapter 15, verse 3 says, The eyes of the Lord are in every place, beholding the evil and the good. You, you, you don't get away from God. Sometimes we, you know, we go and... Little kids, you know, they do this thing. They look this way and they look this way. The funny thing is they never look up. It's always looking right or left. We never look up. Yet God's there. God sees everything. You're not alone. We sing the song, no, never alone. No, never alone. He promised never to leave me, never to leave me alone. No, you're never alone. God is everywhere present. Jeremiah chapter 23, verse 23 and 24 says, Am I a God at hand, saith the Lord, and not a God far off? Can any hide himself in secret places that I shall not see him, saith the Lord? Do not I fill heaven and earth, saith the Lord? What is that teaching us? 
the omnipresence of God. God is everywhere present. Hebrews chapter 12, 13, verse 3, I quoted to you. I, I love the story. I just read it of Elisha and his confidence in the presence of God. Remember in the king of Syria, I alluded to this not too long ago, when the king of Syria, you know, Elisha was telling where, you know, uh, uh, where the king of Syria was and where he was making his decisions and stuff like that. And consequently, Israel was spared because the king of Syria would set up a little uh, way to capture the Israelites. And then all of a sudden, the Israelites wouldn't come. And the king of Syria says, well, who in the world is, who in the world is leaking the plans? And one of his servants says, it's, it's none of us, king. There's a man of God over there, and his name is Elisha, and he knows what you think in your bedroom. Where is he? Well, he's over there in Dothan. That's where he's at. Go get him. <laughs> well, they got a whole big army and add men and swords and horses and everything like that. They surround the city of Dothan, and, and his servant goes out to have devotions in the morning. And the sun's coming up, and what does he see on the horizon? Syrians all around the entire city, encircling the entire city. He runs back to Elisha. He says, Alas, Master, what shall we do? Elisha says very calmly, Hey, listen, don't worry about it. There's more with us than there are with them. And then finally Elisha says, Lord, just open his eyes, help him to see what I already know is going on out there. What is that? That is a confidence in the presence of God. I love that story. I love the story. Elisha even goes down there. Remember, they, they've circled the city so they can get Elisha and bring him back to the king of Syria. Elisha goes down there personally and says, Hey, boys, wrong place. This, this isn't the guy you're looking for. I know who he is. Follow me. <laughs> he leads him over to the king of Israel. And the king reels and goes, What do I do? What do I do? What do I do? Do I kill him? He says, No, don't kill him. Feed him and send him back home. You, you know, just the confidence that he had in the presence of God. We need to realize that God is with us. That same confidence that God is with you. It's a neat thing. Well, I move on. You're never alone. God is always with you. Elisha was convinced of this in 2 Kings chapter 6. The realization of this caused Joseph to flee the seductive advance of Potiphar's wife. Listen to Joseph's words. Okay, Potiphar's wife came and she tried to seduce him and she came day after day and finally she caught him. And then in Genesis chapter 39, 7 through 9, it came to pass that after these things that his master's wife cast her eyes upon Joseph and she said, lie with me. But he refused and he said unto his master's wife, behold, my master, what if not? What if with me, with me in the house? And he hath committed all into my hand. There is none greater in this house than I. Neither hath he kept back anything from me but thee, because thou art his wife. How then can I do this great wickedness and sin against God? What was Joseph convinced of in the midst of that seductive, that tempting moment that God knew exactly what was going on? You say, yeah, but Joseph ended up in prison. Read the rest of the story. Yeah, but Joseph ended up second in command in all of Egypt. It's amazing how we take snapshots and we evaluate things on snapshots. You need to look at the rest of the story. God rewarded him. But he was conscious of God. He was conscious of God in his life, and that's how the victory came. Well, we move on. 
practice the presence of the Lord. I've said this before. It's a good principle. God's presence needs to be just as real to you as the person sitting next to you. Okay, you ready? Are you ready? I want you to look at the person next to you. Now, if you don't have any money, just look as close as you can to whoever might be close to you. Okay? Look at the person next to you and say, I appreciate you. Good, good, good. You did pretty good. Okay, some of you. Jeremiah, what's your problem? <laughs> okay. Now, I want you to close your eyes. And as real as you looked into the eyes of the person next to you, I want you to say to God, God, I appreciate you. How real was that to you? When you looked at the person next to you, it was very real. Their physical presence convinced you that the message was coming across. Your eyes met their eyes. You knew that there was communication. And I say to you that the presence of God needs to be just as real as the presence of that person sitting right next to you. You need to feel that he heard you just as well as that person next to you heard you. You see what I'm talking about? That's what I'm talking about when I say observe the omnipresence of God. When we're that convinced that God is with us, it will change your life. It will cause you to do some things you wouldn't do otherwise. It'll cause you not to do things that you've attempted to do and know you shouldn't. R. Run from sin. What's R? Okay. My son, if sinners entice thee, consent thou not. Proverbs chapter 4, verses 14 through 15. Enter not into the path of the wicked. Go not into the way of evil men. Avoid it. Pass not by it. Turn from it and pass away. Well, listen, we need, to be, we need to distance ourselves as far as we can from sin. We often hear the admonition to resist the devil. Okay, submit yourself therefore to God. Resist the devil. He'll flee from you. Let me tell you something even better. Avoid sin. Don't even go to it. If you know it's present in a certain location, stay away from there. If you know you're tempted in a certain place, then don't go to that place. You know, sometimes we don't have to worry about the devil tempting us because we tempt ourselves. We place ourselves in temptation situations. You take a 17-year-old boy and a 17-year-old girl and you put them in a backseat of a car on a dark night, you have placed yourself in a very vulnerable situation. You need to set up things to prevent that. Avoid those things. You don't want to drink, don't go to the parties where they are drinking. If you don't want to do drugs, don't go to the places where the drug folks hang out. Avoid. Pass not by it. Turn away from it. 
Don't put yourself right smack dab in the middle of a temptation situation. Distance yourself as far as you can from those temptation situations. Now, Joseph ended up in a mad situation with Potiphar's wife, and as soon as he felt like he, he ran, he fled. She had his garment, but he fled. He got out of there. The Bible talks about fleeing youthful lusts, fleeing fornication. Run from it. Get away from it. Don't be like the unwise young man in Proverbs chapter 7 who strayed by the street corner of the, of the prostitute and then wonder why he fell. I'll tell you why he fell. He had no business being by that corner. He knew what was at that corner. Just like Lot knew it was on the well-watered plains of Sodom. He knew what was over there in that direction. He ended up being succumbing to the very lifestyle his kids did. He lost his family because of that. Listen, folks, if you see things that are sinful, don't head toward that thinking that you can handle it. And maybe you say, well, I can, but what about your kids? What about your grandkids? What about those who perhaps are weaker and they succumb to those sinful things? Avoid it. Flee from that sin. Get away from it. Second Timothy 2.22, flee youthful lusts, follow after righteousness, faith, charity, peace, and, and then the call upon, uh, call out the Lord with a pure heart. 1 Corinthians 6.18, flee fornication, every sin that a man doeth is without the body, but he that committeth fornication sinneth against his own body. And number why? Yield to the Holy Spirit. Yield to the Holy Spirit. What's why? Galatians chapter 5, verse 16 says this, This say I then, walk in the Spirit, and you shall not fulfill the lust of the flesh. Folks, when you walk in the Spirit, you pretty much solve the situation. If you walk in the Spirit, you're not walking in the flesh. And if you're walking in the flesh, you are not walking in the Spirit. So yield yourself to the Holy Spirit of God. Another verse that's really good along that line is Romans chapter 6, verses 12 and 13. It says this, Let not sin therefore reign, be the, the ruling factor in your life, let not sin therefore reign in your mortal body that in order that ye should obey it in the lusts thereof, the strong desires thereof. Neither yield ye your members as instruments of unrighteousness unto sin, but yield yourselves unto God and, your, those, and, and, and as those that are alive from the dead and your members as instruments of righteousness unto God. Romans 8.13 says, For if you live after the flesh, you shall die. But if ye through the Spirit do mortify the deeds of the body, ye shall live. The Spirit is powerful, folks. Greater is he that is in you than he that is in the world. The Spirit is powerful. We need to yield to him. We need to depend upon him. We need to constantly have a dialogue going on with the Spirit of God. Jim Chetler told this story, and I thought it was good. He said this little boy, I think he was like six years old, you know, he saw his dad was out there doing the yard work and he was out there and his dad had a, had a, a chainsaw, you know, and his dad was cutting some things down and his little boy ran up to his dad. He says, Dad, Dad, can, 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 I, can I, you try to chainsaw? Can I try to chainsaw? And, oh, no, son, no. no that's, that's a little dangerous for you. Uh, no, I don't think so. Well, dad was out there a little bit later and he had a weed ear, you know, and he's taking a weed ear and he was going around trimming things around the trees and stuff like that. And the little boy runs up to his dad again and says, Dad, 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 can I use the weed eater? He says, oh, I don't think so, son. I don't think I want you using the weed eater either. It can be dangerous too. That thing can hurt you. And so um, 
And so anyway, the boy was kind of discouraged, you know, and so afterward, he, and uh, his dad was blowing off, you know, and he, and he says, Dad, Dad, can, can I help blow off the driveway? He said, well, that kid can't help blowing off the driveway. Yes, yeah, son, go ahead. You can blow off the driveway. So Dad went back to work in the garage. And the boy was quiet for a while, and he looked around, and he saw something really strange. He, he, he saw his boy down like this. He walked over to his son. He said, son, what are you doing? He said, dad, I just wanted to blow off the driveway. Huh. Oh, no, son. We got something a whole lot more powerful that help you do that. <laughs> you know, I think sometimes we're trying to do the same thing that little boy is in our lives. Rather than dependent upon the power of the Spirit of God to clean things up and help our lives, we're kind of down like that little boy going <laughs> and we keep failing we keep messing up because we're trying to do it in the energy of our own fleshly means we got a holy spirit he's powerful he's god he lives within you he's sealed within you as a believer and he can give you the power to overcome any sin, any temptation that you will ever face. There's no temptation taken you, but such as is common to man. But God is faithful, who will not suffer you to be, that means allow, will not suffer you or allow you to be tempted above that you're able, but will with the temptation provide a way to escape. That means in order that ye may be able to bear it. People say, oh, I just couldn't help it. No, that's a lie. That's another one of those foundational uh, fortresses, those fortresses of lies, those faulty fortresses. No, you can't help it because God's given you something inside of you that can overcome sin and can overcome temptation. And if you believe you can't help it, you're operating from a fortress of falsehood. And you're going to be a victim of your own faulty thinking. Yes, You've got the spirit of the living God, and he's all-powerful, and he can give you the victory over sin and temptation. But you've got to be serious about these things. This is not just play stuff. This isn't stuff you rattle off in, in fun time. This is something, every one of these things, they're realities that you need to totally engage your heart. So let's just review. All right, I'm just going over these here. What's number one? What's number two? Next. 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 There you go. Seven steps. Seven practical things, all founded on the Word of God, things that you can do, things that you can help others to also to do so that you don't so let's put this way, so that you don't give in to temptation and you don't become engulfed in sin. So I want you to think about these things. Meditate upon these things. Give thyself wholly to them that thy profiting may appear to all.
Let's pray. Lord, we thank you. We thank you for your word. We thank you for what it tells us. We thank you that we have a spirit within us that's able to take the truth that's in our Bibles and not only weld it to our minds, but God put it to work in our bodies, in our mortal bodies, so that we can obey these things and experience the victories that you want for us to have. Lord God, help each one here, Lord, to take these things seriously. Just knowing them, Lord, with the head knowledge is not what we need. We need to experience these things. We need to put these to work in the sincerity of our hearts. So help us, we pray. 